0: Hi, everybody. Pleasure to be here. I've had one of those days. You've all had them, so I have to apologize for my casual attire, the nice jacket that I had to wear to do this presentation fell off of my travel bag this morning as I was running through the Nashville airport. I rolled over it and dragged it halfway across the airport. So this is what I now am left with, so I do apologize. I do know how to dress for uh, activities such as this. So I get to talk today about my favorite drug on the planet, Um, so I'm very excited to be here to talk about isotretinoin and what's new in what's left of 2013 by way of disclosures, these are the companies for which I'm on speakers boards and ad boards and advisory capacity. And the ones that matter for today, I always think it's funny when people do their disclosures and then don't tell you why they're disclosing stuff. So this is why I'm disclosing, because I'm gonna be talking about two relatively new products from these two companies uh, today as they both manufacture isotretinoin. So the topics for today that I'd like to talk about is the new formulation of isotretinoin. I'd like to do a little bit on iPledge, because you know me. I can't talk, day can't go by without talking about uh, iPledge. The new isotretinoin procurement program that's out there. And then briefly, does isotretinoin cause inflammatory bowel disease? Do tetracyclines cause inflammatory bowel disease? And then, if we have time, a couple of new interesting papers uh, that I found. So let's start off with the new formulation of isotretinoin. What's new is the new formulation. What's old is the knowledge that the timing of administration of isotretinoin is critically important to its absorption. We know that we need to take it with meals, right? That if you don't take it with meals, an empty stomach reduces the area under the curve and the Cmax, the highest it ever gets in the plasma, by 77 and 55% respectively. We also know that all other things being equal, the pharmacokinetics support the use of this drug twice a day. Let me ask you, who suggests twice a day? Maybe 30% of hands went up. So the, the data does support that. It suggests that if you take it twice a day, the lowest the blood level ever gets is higher than the highest the level ever gets with once a day use after steady state has been achieved. So clearly, the pharmacokinetics suggested it ought to be a twice a day drug. Those of us who didn't put our hands up probably were thinking, well, you know, when I ask them to take it twice a day, they usually don't and then the the compliance drops and they're not getting as much drug as I want them to get. So these are the issues uh, that we're faced with. Stomach contents dramatically affect the absorption of most of the oral medications that our patients take. Most commonly what happens is that the food in the stomach decreases the absorption of medications by altering either the dissolution of the pills themselves, uh, diluting the medication, or altering the time that it takes for the stomach to empty. But highly fat-soluble drugs like isotretinoin do better with food in the stomach. It increases the solubility and also increases the production of bile, which further increases the absorption of fat from the stomach. And we've known this for many years. This paper dates back to 1983. So very early studies established the enhanced bioavailability of isotretinoin in the presence of fat. The question is, how much fat is enough fat? Right? Now, the FDA says that when you're testing medications that are uh, fat soluble, you test it with 50 grams of fat in the stomach already for the pill to land on. And this is an example of what 50 grams of fat looks like. You'd have to have a Big Mac and a donut and a whole cup of milk. I mean, this is crazy, right? It's an awful lot of fat. In fact, this is truly the sample FDA sample diet for breakfast and people who are taking lipophilic drugs. Two eggs fried in bacon, two strips of ba- and butter, two strips of bacon, two slices of toast with butter on it, four ounces of hash brown potatoes, and eight ounces of whole milk, your breakfast of champions. And the problem is that those of you who raised your hand before for BID, you got to do this twice. Or perhaps if you don't like that kind of stuff, you could have a Wendy's Baconator for dinner instead, which apparently has 50 grams of fat. Is that not, I just, I can't even imagine. So that's an awful lot of fat. So my personal unofficial survey of all of you guys over the years, when I ask you who suggests that patients should take it with food, usually 100% of hands go up. Um, Who tells them to take it with a fatty meal? We drop to about 50% of hands up. But nobody ever recommends these supersized, incredibly fat meals. The other thing we do is when we test the triglycerides on our patients, and they're high, what do we suggest to the patient that they do? Go on a low-fat meal, right? Go on a low-fat diet. When you go on a low-fat diet, what happens to their triglycerides while they're on isotretinoin? They go down, right? Well, did they go down because you weren't absorbing the isotretinoin so that it didn't work, so that it didn't go up, or did it go down because of the diet? See what I'm saying? So it's, it's hard to tell why it went down, and I assure you that they're absorbing less isotretinoin if they went on a low-fat diet. So then. Why are we even doing this? So if your triglycerides go up, my suggestion to you is not to go on a no-fat, low-fat diet, but to use one of the lipid-lowering drugs instead. So the problem is that the teenage eating habits are extremely poor. Skipping breakfast is very common amongst teenagers. The American Dietetic Association says that about 50% of boys and 66% of girls do not eat breakfast on a regular basis. And many girls think that they need to be on a diet and that the best way to diet is to skip breakfast. And one in 10 girls in one study don't eat lunch either. So that morning pill is falling on a deaf stomach, which is the other reason why I use it once a day after a fatty meal. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that once a day is a good idea. I still believe that twice a day is better, um, but I'm just saying the reality of that morning pill is that not much of it is getting absorbed. So it seems like our only options are either nodulocystic acne or obesity, right? Because if they're gonna stay on this medication with a, a two 50-gram fat uh, meals a day, Uh, they're going to end up gaining a considerable amount of weight during the the use of the drug. So the first possibility is that you don't need 50 grams of fat in order to absorb the medication. Our problem is we know what happens with no fat, and we know what happens with 50 grams of fat, but surely there's some good point in between there that you can minimize the fat absorption and maximize the absorption of the medication, but we don't know what that is because it's never been studied. The other option is this newer formulation of isotretinoin called Absorica, which utilizes something called Litos technology, which is a eutectic mixture um, and of stuff melted and then put into this gelatin cap that does all of these nice things, but for our interest, increases bioavailability of whatever is in that capsule, um, gives us less food dependence, and lowers the variability of intersubject absorption so you can better predict how a patient, each patient, is going to absorb the medication. It's sort of as if the pill is bringing its own fat along to the party, so that there doesn't have to be as much fat in the stomach. So in a study of this newer Absorica, compared to brand name Accutane, in fasting versus fed state, 60 patients, 57 of whom finished the study, were enrolled in this study. Each one of them did all of the options separated by a 21 day uh, washout period. So they took Accutane on a full stomach, 21 days. Accutane on an empty stomach, 21 days. Absorica, empty. Absorica, full, right? So each person did all four options. And this is what the results were. So the top bar represents the Fed state. And let's just look at area under the curve. Absorica in the middle and Accutane over on the right. You can see in the Fed state that there's very little difference between the two. But in the fasting state, uh, the absorica resulted in considerably better absorption of the medication. So in the absorica phase three trial uh, that was completed last year, it was the first study that we've ever had, prospective study, of isotretinoin since the 19 since 1979 when it was FDA approved. The number of patients in the original trial for isotretinoin, you ready for this one, 1970s? 100 people, that's it. And half of them were on drug and half of them were on placebo. So it was a very small trial. So it's not surprising that we've discovered all these side effects as we went along, because hardly anybody was in the pivotal trial, right? So this is the largest study that was ever done. Not only did they capture, efficacy information, but more importantly, they captured side effect information, which is going to be published shortly, Um, and it's going to be our first prospective study ever looking at the side effects of isotretinoin, and you're going to be very happy with the results because basically nothing happened to any of the 925 patients that wasn't something that you would have expected, and these people went through everything, everything eye exams and psych exams, three one-hour psychological evaluations. If they farted, they got a colonoscopy. It was crazy complicated. So we are gonna have nice data now in a prospective fashion to talk about this drug and how the side effects are not nearly as bad as the lawyers, want us to believe they are right there was no difference between the generic isotretinoin and absorica in terms of efficacy or in terms of safety right so that's absorica this was the uh, efficacy data you can see absorica versus gen- generic isotretinoin a dead even heat right but that's in the fed state so who knows what would have happened if if they were fasting, which is what many of our patients do in the morning, uh, perhaps this curve would have been different. Just a one picture, I have to have one picture, right? So this is a picture from the clinical trials. And this is sort of what we see, isn't it? We take the before picture and then the after picture, you can't stop them from smiling. It's one of those really good moments in practice where mom tears up and says, I wish I had started it earlier, right? And the kid actually looks at you and it's just, its maybe there's even a hug involved. And then what happens, mom says, thank you so much. By the way, do you do Botox, right? (laughs) On the way out the door, it's like, yes, in fact, I do. So it's just a really good moment all around. So I pledge, my favorite topic. I was in Philadelphia not too long ago, and all over town was this sign, Uh, I Pledge Not to Raise My Hand in Violence. I thought, you know, they don't know really what I pledge means to me. Um, But I think many of us uh, did not pledge uh, not to raise our hand in violence. It was a rough couple of years, uh, 2006, 2007, when we started working on it. So the question is, has it worked? All of this effort that we put into iPledge, was it worth it? In a large Kaiser uh, retrospective study, uh, they looked at females of childbearing potential who had filled at least one prescription during 2004 to 2008. And they looked at the incidence of fetal exposure before and after iPledge. No difference between iPledge and SMART, right? The little data that iPledge released to us, which was back in 2007, is displayed on this slide. I've received no data since then. So in the first year of iPledge, there were 122 pregnancies. And you can see the previous risk management program at 120 and 127. In other words, no difference. And prescriptions had dropped in that year by 25% because People were annoyed with iPledge, and they didn't write as many prescriptions. On the other hand, the capturing of the data was a heck of a lot better. So the drop in prescriptions probably balanced out by the capturing of the data. So it's probably correct that for whatever reason, no matter what you do in the United States, there's approximately 120 pregnancies a year on isotretinoin. The interesting thing is that those people who got pregnant, of the 72 people in the study who who we knew, who we could follow, um, almost all of them said that they had been using birth control pills and condoms. I don't think so, right? That was 72% of the patients. 18% of the patients said that their birth control method was abstinence. You know, that might have happened once in recorded history, but I don't think it's happened since then, right? So they're lying to us, and that's very important for us to know. I, and many of you probably say, I don't put any teenage girls in isotretinoin unless they're on birth control pills. So that's what I say too, but I'm suggesting to you that the patients, yes, you to death, and they click on birth control pill and condoms, and so do you, but it might be a farce, because in the studies, 72% of the time, that was not really true. Okay, but it does detect pregnancy early, uh, which allows more time for decision-making, and if they're gonna continue with, along with their pregnancy, perhaps less overall exposure to isotretinoin, so that's useful. There were some changes in 2012. I'm sure those of you who I pledge your own stuff know this. It got a little bit easier. You don't have to do override codes all the time now. You don't have to repopulate your demographics. So overall, there's less need to call the call center, which has also gotten easier. It's hardly more than a minute now for me to get through to the call center. But the teeth also got sharper. They instituted a non-compliance action policy in 2012. Anybody ever received a letter from my pledge? Quite a few hands. Um, so they're sending out letters now, and the the whole thing is that they just they they put more teeth into the rules that were already there, and penalties may vary uh, if you get one of those letters and don't respond in a timely and decent fashion. Uh, re-education, reinforcement, or permanent deactivation in the program, and them telling mama FDA on you, right, so that you're on some kind of a watch list, theoretically. So it's it's really important that you follow the rules, more important than ever before. The huge I pledge no-nos include prescribing directly to the patient, allowing prescriptions to be filled outside the US or over the internet. They are, you can't do that. I don't care how much it saves the patients. They cannot use the Internet or go to another country and come back and have you monitoring the use of this medication. Intentionally falsifying pregnancy test results, including the date. Guilty. Anybody else? Come on. Somebody here fudged, thank you for admitting it. We fudged the dates. You put in one date and it turns out her window is closed and she's gonna have to skip a whole month. Oh, I really meant the sixth, right? Um, I did this accidentally the other day. I entered somebody as November 6th for the pregnancy test and it was really truly the, I'm sorry, I entered four and it was really truly six. And it ended up being an issue for her because she was gonna miss her window. I attempted to fix that mistake oh my gosh, it took me hours to get that fixed, and included needing to fax over the pregnancy test, which is really, frankly, none of their business and probably a HIPAA violation, directly from Quest 2, I pledged to prove to them that the blood test was done on the 6th. And it took me, it was a long weekend, it was Veterans Day weekend, and it took almost three days for this thing to get solved. So if you do any of these things, if you get more than two warnings in 60 days, or if any of your designees get deactivated within a one-year period of time, out you go. So it's not just you, but it's the people who are doing the job for you. So, behave yourself. What about the new isotretinoin procurement program? This is utilizing one of the new generics under the name of Xenotane which has been uh, AB rated to both Accutane and Amnestine. In fact, I saw the poster as I walked by today. They have 10, 20, and 40 milligram capsules, but what's unique about it is that this is supported by a dedicated US-based mail order pharmacy that also goes through iPledge. And the idea behind this was that prescribers struggle with iPledge, I personally don't anymore, but that's beside the point, and patients struggle with it and make mistakes. And what they do is they hound the patients, too, to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do and that the timing is correct, all with the idea of avoiding uh, denied prescriptions and missed windows and gaps in therapy. So this is all based on the knowledge that in the fifth year of iPledge, fifth year of iPledge, there were more than 1 million prescriptions that were written but almost half of them were denied at least one time due to failures to comply with iPledge, either from the patient's side or, I'm sorry, what happened? Or from the uh, prescriber's side. Most of these were females of, of childbearing potential who ended up missing their window, which as we know, if it's the first month, means a whole month off drug. Um, and subsequently, what, 19 or 12 days, whatever it is. So the idea was, let's not let this happen anymore. So this is what happens. You you write the prescription, you fax it off to this uh, uh, in-house pharmacy, and on the left is what's normally supposed to happen. They're looking for the insurance coverage. If they find it, they fill it, it's done. Over on the right, they now have a compassionate care program. We've been asking for this ever since I Pledge started. And it's been very difficult to get, because who was going to manage the, com- the drug itself, right? right? The pharmacy, the patient, us. It was very hard to do. But now that it's coming directly from an in-house pharmacy, the FDA said that you can do the compassionate program again. So PROMIUS is doing it through this program, um, Rambaxi, who makes uh, Absorica, also has now an indigent program. So the patients have to actually prove that they can't afford the drug. You can't use it for like your neighbor's kid or something. They actually have to need uh, help paying for the medication. At any rate, everything ends up down here at the bottom. Their promise is that no matter what, Zenitane provided is what's going to be at the, at the bottom line, right? No matter what happens with the adjudication with the insurance. So um, that's the new procurement program. All right, moving on to inflammatory bowel disease. I'm just checking what time it is. I'm not gonna play Candy Crush, I promise. Although I am tempted. Um, isotretinoin and, infl- anybody else addicted? Oh God, it's too much fun. Um, inflammatory bowel disease and isotretinoin. So looking at isotretinoin first, the FDA approved it in 1982 for nodulocystic cystic acne. We treat 400,000 patients a year in the United States for acne and other diseases, totaling 13 million, and this is old data from, what, 2010, and 20 million worldwide. So we're probably up to at least uh, 14 million by now. It's a vitamin A derivative, as you know, uh, with numerous developmental and potentially carcinogenic pathways in the body. Retinoid biology is extremely complex, and the receptors are everywhere, which means that any side effect that the patient has could be blamed on the use of isotretinoin, right, because they're every place. It's involved in intestinal epithelial growth and cell repair and programmed cell death or apoptosis. So one of the the times I was uh, deposed for this, trying to defend a prescriber for the development of inflammatory bowel disease after the use of isotretinoin, they use that word apoptosis against us. What is apoptosis, doctor? Well, it's cell death, aha, so this drug causes cell death, interesting, right? In the, in the intestine, well, wouldn't that lead to, you know, poop shoot issues? It leads to all sorts of stuff with retinoids, and that's, that's the whole point. So what about inflammatory bowel disease? It's an umbrella term for both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and you see the prevalence here in the United States. It's quite low. There's a bimodal distribution uh, curve for the development of both diseases, and as you can see, one of the peaks of the disease development coincides with the peak age of isotretinoin use. So I'm thinking that this is, you know, if you go along with age and you hump in acne and you hump in isotretinoin use, the inflammatory bowel disease hump is occurring at the same time, probably unrelated, just moving along uh, with a peak occurring at approximately the same time. Pathogenesis of both diseases is unknown, but probably involves some sort of autoimmune reaction to the intestinal tract. But the trigger for this autoimmune reaction is completely unknown and may very well be different for one patient than another, hence the difficulty in pinning this down. We know that there's a genetic predisposition for both. Crohn's is 30 times more likely to occur if a sibling has the disease. And in twin, uh, in uh, ulcerative colitis, there's a twin concordance of 10% in identical and 5 to 10% in fraternal twins. So there is a family history, which you can obviously ask about. So, what about putting the two of them together then, IBD and isotretinoin? Well, the first time it was ever reported was with 1986. It was a case report that had both things happening in one patient. Um, there were no cases during the pivotal trial, but hell, with 100 patients, <laughs> you know, unlikely. Um, several reported cases after that. A couple of them had no definitive diagnosis. It was just, as I said, poop shoot issues. It could have been just irritable bowel, right? I'm, I'm pooping more than I used to, or something like that, as opposed to being actually Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Several of them had positive de-challenge, re So they had issues, they stopped the drug, the issues went away, they went back on the drug, it happened again. Well, that's not Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. That's just general issues with the drug, right? Because it wouldn't go away as soon as you stopped the drug and then come back when you started it again. I actually think de rechallenge supports the concept that it's not Crohn's or ulcerative colitis rather than supporting that it is. And nevertheless, there was a PI modification to include GI warnings which said that it's been associated with inflammatory bowel disease, you have to worry about it in patients with a prior history of intestinal disorders, uh, persists after Accutane has been stopped, and if, you, if any issues occur, you should stop it immediately. Actually, that second bullet point has been shown now not to be the case. If you look into this very clear, very, uh, very carefully, what you'll find is a whole body of information suggesting that if you have Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, the use of isotretinoin does not make it worse, right? And of course, if it doesn't make it worse, then how could it have caused it to begin with? I don't know. But there is no data that people who come to you with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis need to be kept off of the drug. So then it was all quiet. From 1998 to 2007, not a peep about GI disease. So what happened in 2007? Bunch of case reports? No. The lawyers got a hold of it, is what happened. And there were more than 5,000 lawsuits filed just in 2007. 40 to 50 of them went to trial. Many of them were dismissed, most of them, in fact. All nine cases that went to trial were lost by Roche, which is why they subsequently decided, you know what, let's not make this drug anymore. And Accutane left the market. What lawyers love to say is that Accutane was taken off the market, which is not a true statement. Roche just decided not to make it anymore because they were, you know, the lawsuits were killing them. So three of the verdicts were subsequently uh, reversed on appeal. But one of the funniest ones, if this is possible for it to be funny, was this one. Remember um, A Few Good Men, right? Uh, This guy over here on the right, him, his name is James Marshall in real life. And he played US Marine Loudon Downey in that movie. He is suing Roche for 11 million dollars because he said after the use of isotretinoin he developed IBD resulting in colectomy which I do not deny it's a horrible disease and a horrible thing to have happen. And he said that his career was derailed as a result of incontinence issues. Well, I can see that, especially if you're in swashbuckling movies, right, with a colectomy, kind of difficult. What was funny about it, if there is something funny, is that the people who were deposed on this were Rob Ryan Rob Reiner, Brian Dennehy, and Martin Sheen, who all said things like, he had the potential to be the next James Dean-like star, and that dream is gone because he took something to treat. Acne. You can hear the acne, right? Like something as silly as acne. Like he couldn't, he wouldn't have had a problem with his career if he had a face full of cystic acne. right? So anyway, this whole thing just turned into an incredible circus. Um, I think it was uh, that that they finally dropped the case, but I have to look into that. But anyway, it was kind of an interesting circus just to let you know. So, keeping with that movie, um, what's the truth and can we handle it, right? So the IBD has been diagnosed in patients before, during, and after uh, the use of isotretinoin. Is this a coincidence? Is it an association? Or is it actually causation? So what we have to, uh, to look at is a couple of literature reviews first. In 2006 and 2009, Um, Some guys went and looked through all the literature to see what they could find, and one of them said, well, you know, there were 85 cases of some kind of bowel stuff, but they didn't know what it really was. And in 2009, a study said we would have expected 59 cases of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis per year, and all we actually saw was 14. So that's good. But the study was uh, criticized for the underreporting is ubiquitous when using a MedWatch system to uh, come up with these numbers. So we needed studies. And in 2009, we got two studies. They were both case-controlled studies. This one was done in Canada on one million residents. Um, And they looked for newly diagnosed inflammatory bowel disease compared to age-matched controls and found no difference between the two groups. In the United States, same kind of study, now down, now done on 55 million patients, found a 1.68-fold increased risk for developing inflammatory bowel disease on isotretinoin compared to those who did not take the drug. And in a subgroup analysis, it was found that the strong association was with ulcerative colitis, but not with Crohn's and that the risk increased with increasing dose and increasing duration of prescriptions, okay? So 1.68-fold. The real question is, what does that mean? I mean, I know that no difference is one, and 1.68 indicates that there is an association, but what does it actually mean to me clinically? So Popescu and Popescu. I have to find out if they're husband and wife, brother and sister, or what, but they both have the same name. Um, said, okay, well, this ratio is quite high. You know, 1.68 means something. But we really want to know what it means to us in practice. So what they used was an estimate for the incidence of ulcerative colitis at 10 per 100,000 patients, which is sort of what person years, which is what we saw before, and using that relative risk of 1.68. What does that mean when you do the math, which I don't know how to do? They come up with a number needed to do harm of almost 3,000. Which means to us, with this odds ratio of 1.68, that you would need to treat almost 3,000 patients with isotretinoin in order to observe one excess case of ulcerative colitis. Makes me feel better. Hopefully it makes you feel better as well. Then there, Since then, we've had two other studies. One was a retrospective study from British Columbia, Canada, in which they looked at virtually Every soul, because the same company, the same, uh, the socialized medicine takes care of everybody, right? So they looked at everyone, and they looked for IBD over a 12-year period of time, in the 47,000 patients who had been treated with isotretinoin, 185,000 who were treated with topical acne products, and the rest, right? No difference in IBD overall in this very large patient population. Interestingly, if you looked at just the 12 to 19 year olds, there was a small association for both isotretinoin and topical therapy, suggesting that it's acne, not isotretinoin, that's associated, maybe, possibly, with inflammatory bowel disease. And that makes a modicum of sense, and we'll look at that in a second. This was the other study, which was a case-controlled study over uh, an eight year period of time in women treated with isotretinoin, uh, and basically no increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease was found. So those are the two most recent studies. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with the three most rigorous studies showing conflicting results, but they're all case controlled studies and I don't understand statistics real well, I gotta admit, but apparently case control studies are not designed to show causality, only to show an association. Like there's association between multiple sclerosis and poodles, have you ever heard that? If you had a poodle, you're more likely to have MS. It's a very clear uh, association, but probably not, the poodles probably don't cause the development of MS there might be an association between nodulocystic acne and IBD because neutrophilic dermatoses, as we know, um, are clinically similar to acne, and we already know that pyodermas can be associated with inflammatory bowel disease. In fact, there is a syndrome called the Papa syndrome where the A is acne. It's an autosomal dominant. Uh, condition, and the responsible gene has been identified, and mutations in this gene involve the inflammatory pathways, and the genes associated with both cystic acne and Crohn's, kind of interesting. Maybe Crockett was unable to show an association between acne and IBD in his study because he didn't look only at severe acne. Right? Maybe it's the severe acne patients where there's an association and not all takers. And maybe it's the acne that's causing the inflammatory bowel disease, not the isotretinoin. We don't know, but it's food for thought. So what's a girl to do? What am I supposed to do with the patient sitting in front of me after I've digested all of this information that frankly hasn't helped me very much? Right? So. I think it's unlikely that this question is ever going to be answered conclusively. There's an extremely low incidence of IBD, and in order to do a study, a prospective study, the N would have to be gigantic. I mean, the N in the, in the American study was 55 million, and they couldn't give us the answer. How many people do we need to look at, right? So it's unlikely that it's ever going to be answered conclusively. So here are our risk factors that we could sort of hang our hat on. Ulcerative colitis and Crohn's family history, Jewish ancestry, who knows. Smoking is the number one characteristic for both diseases that are associated with it in Crohn's and without it in ulcerative colitis. So that doesn't do us much good. Did you smoke? Well, good, then you won't get ulcerative colitis, but you're gonna get Crohn's. A history of antibiotic use is present for both, and we're gonna get into that in a second. Not having been breastfed. Hmm, there you go, that's really helpful for me. Can't really fix that now at this juncture. Uh, Diet high in animal protein, where omega-6 is greater than omega-3 has been reported. And most interestingly to me, hormonal contraceptives. In the year after birth control pills came out, the incidence of Crohn's disease increased tenfold. So there's another another, uh, medication that might be responsible. This I just found today. I always do literature searches right before I come to give a talk, literally up in my room an hour ago. <laughs> men with Crohn's disease are more likely to be born between April and June. So, spring babies are more likely to have Crohn's. Are you kidding me? So, I'm supposed to ask my patients, What month were you born in? Oops, can't have isotretinoin. Absolutely nutty. Why did anybody even do this study? It's just. Beyond me, I hope none of you are Shaw, because I think this is crazy. All right, so recommendations, maintain a high level of vigilance, it's all you can do. The family history is helpful, especially with Crohn's. Um, Don't know what you're gonna do with it when you get it, but it's interesting. Discussion of the risks and benefits, and certainly have a low threshold for discontinuing the medication. And along the lines of save your own butt, You're documenting every single month in your chart the absence of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, bloody stools, cramping, abdominal pain, and tenesmus, the eight things that are in the I Pledge manual looking at the GI uh, disorders. So moving on to tetracyclines. I don't have any better information for you here, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway, because the patients ask. So do tetracyclines cause inflammatory bowel disease? This all came about because some smart person said, well, maybe it's not the isotretinoin that caused the inflammatory bowel disease. Maybe it was the tetracyclines that were taken before the isotretinoin that caused the inflammatory bowel disease, since we know that antibiotics are on both lists, right? Ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So they did a retrospective cohort study in the UK, and indeed, If you look, you're going to find it, a 2.5-fold greater risk of Crohn's after doxy, not after minnow, not after tetra, just after doxy, remembering here that the isotretinoin study showed an increased risk of ulcerative colitis, not Crohn's. So we've got doxy and Crohn's and and isotretinoin and ulcerative colitis. I don't know what to make of this, but there you go. That's the information I have for you. So IBD, after both antibiotics and isotretinoin, was looked at more recently than that last study. This is 2012 in the European Journal of Clinical Pharmacology. They did a systematic review of the FDA adverse effect reporting system and found no increased risk of inflammatory bowel disease after administration of both drugs. Drugs linked to Crohn's include other drugs, as we know. Isotretinoin, antibiotics, also non-inflammatory, uh, non-steroidal inflammatory anti-inflammatory. Who, who hasn't taken one of those in the past? And oral contraceptives, remember, especially for Crohn's. Um, mycophenolate, Moffatil as well, and Etanisept and the imyab, Imabs and Umabs um, are also on the list. But I think oral contraceptives is interesting because what's the first thing we do before we put our patients on isotretinoin, right? So there are a whole bunch of drugs that might have led to the Crohn's or the ulcerative colitis that develops years later. It's gonna be hard to figure it out. So do antibiotics cause and worsen Crohn's? What information do we have? Many, but not all, studies show an association between antibiotic use and Crohn's, um, but they rely mostly on patient recall. You know, how much antibiotics did you take, when did you take it, did you finish the prescription, all that kind of stuff. There are only four population-based retrospective studies, and they're all retrospective, there's no prospective, have demonstrated an association. But in all four studies, no adjustments were made for acne severity, the total amount of antibiotic administered, the type of antibiotic administered, or patient adherence. They looked at the prescriptions written. Well, you know, we write lots of prescriptions that never get filled. So we don't know. And tetracyclines don't specifically target the gut flora. So if they don't target the gut flora, could they possibly be related? Maybe the ones that do target the gut flora, the you know ciprofloxacins and the uh, levofloxins of the world, but perhaps not the tetracyclines. So that's all I have to tell you about that one. So now let's just look, in the two seconds I have left, uh, some interesting new studies, and I'm going to pick and choose. Cardiovascular disease was looked at, and you see the yellow highlight. I'm going to cut to the chase. No statistically significant association found. There have been some case reports looking into the possibility. Additionally, we have the safety information from the Absorica trial, the 925 patients, all of whom took isotretinoin. There were no cardiovascular red flags. Should it be dosed at a generic isotretinoin, be dosed at 150 milligrams uh, total dose, as opposed to 120. We're all familiar with the recommendation that you keep a patient on isotretinoin until they reach 120 to 150 milligrams per kilogram. And how do we decide when to stop at 120? When, how do we decide when to stop at 150? Who knows, you know, it got better last month, so I'll go an extra month, it's, it's very difficult to tell. Their suggestion was the FDA requires that generic medication have a bioequivalence between 80% and 125% of the Innovator product. So if by chance your patient got a product that was at 80% of the comparator and you, only, and you went only to 120, and if they took it on an empty stomach They didn't get the dose you thought they were getting. So, their suggestion was if you're going to use generic, and if you're not, and so that the food absorption is an issue also, you're probably better going to the 150 end if you want to see patients um, uh, relapse free. And we know that the relapse rate has increased over the last 10 years, so it makes a little bit of sense. This is interesting. Two papers came out on how long do we need to wait before resurfacing after isotretinoin. I was pretty comfortable with the one year mark that, that most people have been recommending, but these two brave souls decided to push the issue. 10 patients with facial scars within one to two, three months after discontinuing isotretinoin, gave them a full face medium depth chemical peel and manual sandpaper dermabrasion to areas of scarring. Oh my God, right? We've got a big set to do something like this. I gotta say, they <laughs> found no normal scarring and no hypertrophic scars. Uh, It's 10 people, it's not gonna change my mind, but I do think that they're very brave. Um, These folks did infrared fractional laser and isotretinoin at the same time for people with acne and acne scars. I actually wanted to include this because they they did all these things until they created a bloody dew, And I just love that concept, so I wanted to mention it. But no aggravation of scars after fractional laser. Um, How about this one? Do topical retinoids prevent acne recurrence after isotretinoin? Who here tells their patient on the day that they have graduated? off of isotretinoin, please continue a topical retinoid. So about 50%. You ready to be vindicated? Yes. This is a small study, 20 men, but it's vindication nonetheless, um, who had completed their course of isotretinoin at 120 to 150 mg per kg, were randomized to receive either tretinoin microsphere formulation 0.04% or vehicle for 24 weeks. And there was 38.7% lower lesion count for the folks who are on the uh, tretinoin compared to the folks who are on baseline, uh, um, vehicle compared to baseline. So we're vindicated. Okay, um, Another depression study came out in the, last couple, in, in the last couple of months, again showing not only does it not cause depression, but it looked as if it made the folks even happier. So we've got yet another depression study uh, that looks good for us. So, what do I have to say in summary? New formulation that's less dependent on stomach contents, kinda nice, reducing uh, interpatient variability, getting the dose into the patient that you actually thought they were getting. A new branded generic uh, isotretinoin with this unique delivery system, uh, designed to thwart the iPledge issues that we all have. IBD and isotretinoin, we've got more data in our favor, suggesting it's not an issue. Same for the tetracyclines, although I think we really need more data for tetracyclines. More studies showing improved health, mental health following the use, and validation for those of us who like topical retinoids after treatment with isotretinoin. So I wanna thank you all very much for your attention. It's been a pleasure. And please uh, don't forget the American Acne Rosacea Society. Right on time. Any questions? Do you have any uh, numbers on the women who decided to carry their pregnancy through while becoming pregnant and the results of that? The women who decided to uh, continue their pregnancies, there was an unusually high incidence of miscarriage, which is a consequence often of isotretinoin use. Many of them decided to uh, abort anyway. None of the children, to my knowledge, were born with a defect, thank God. You said that the IBD was during, or before, during, and after. How long after did they look? Was it 10 years post-Accutane? Well, the studies were, of course, different. The longest one, I think, was four years. Four years. Um, Did it matter whether they had more than one round? No. But I do think that, from what I've seen from the times I've been deposed on this issue, the lawyers are really loath to, to consider things past the one year mark after the, to the discontinuation. I think they think they're gonna put a whole bunch of money into the trial and it's not gonna happen. Uh, you know, it's not gonna be beneficial to... Let me tell you one thing that's, that makes me feel better every time I think about it. Do you know that clinicians have never been sued for inflammatory bowel disease or depression after isotretinoin? It's the companies that get sued, not us. So as long as you have not been negligent in your care, as long as you followed through with your informed consent, it has not been directed at us, but rather at the companies. If you're negligent, like don't do a pregnancy test on a woman of childbearing potential, well then that's a different story. But so far, all of these lawsuits have not been against the the, uh, prescribers themselves. Yeah. You have a patient who uh, took Accutane and then it recurs, we consider them a failure. When you retreat them, do you change your length of time or that total amount of 120 to 150 on the second round? That's a good question. So um, if I'm retreating, uh, I'm probably gonna go to the 150 mark um, because we failed the first time around. The second thing that it ought to trigger, if it's a woman, if you have not done hormonal studies previously, you should do the hormonal studies. Um, And um, I lost my train of thought. And uh, if I'm going to treat yet a third time is when I start going to long-term low dose. My second treatment is always still full steam ahead, 120 to 150. And then if it's long-term low dose, they can go as long as they want, especially if it's a man or a woman of non-childbearing potential. I know there are studies that show an association between depression and just having acne in general with that isotretinoin use, and I never really looked at those very very closely. Have you, do you know if there's any very good data there? There is some good data. There were two, they're both from Scandinavia. Um, One is Halverson, and I'm blanking on the other uh, lead author of the other paper, but both of them demonstrated a reduction uh, that acne was associated with uh, depression and with acting out and suicidal thoughts and suicidal attempts, um, independent of the use of isotretinoin. And others have shown a reduction in psychiatric abnormalities um, after taking isotretinoin. So that data is really solidly in our favor. And you know how we know that data is solidly in our favor? When was the last time, if you Google isotretinoin now, all you get is inflammatory bowel disease, because the lawyers aren't interested in depression anymore, because there's too much data that shows that people actually get better. Thank you. What are your thoughts on dosing isotretinoin with a fatty omega-3? And does that compare at all to absorbica? with taking it with an omega-3. Right. Um, I, there's no data on that. Um, I don't believe that the amount of oil that is in one of those capsules or two or four is enough. It's not like, the, it, it's not like a 50 gram of fat meal. Um, and so I don't think you can take enough to really make up for the fact that the, the stomach is empty. Um, The fat that's in the capsule of Absorica is actually, I don't really understand it completely, but it's micellular technology, sort of like like ceramides, where it wraps around individual molecules of isotretinoin and takes them to the party individually. So it's not just fat in the stomach, plop. And the pills actually um, are 10 calories, not surprisingly. So I don't know, I have no data. My female patients um, that are of childbearing age frequently want to know how long after a treatment of course of isotretinoin, can they become pregnant? Well, uh, the party line is one month. The data shows that five days after your last pill, it's out of your system. I would go with the party line, because it's standard of care, and you don't want to mess around in that situation. Okay. And just as a purely informative thing for my fellow PAs, I'm in Mississippi. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Mississippi is now denying anyone who's not a board-certified dermatologist to prescribe isotretinoin. Really? And so um, hopefully that doesn't happen in, in any other states. I've appealed it, and I have yet to find out. So wow. we'll keep you all posted. Thank you. Uh, my question is about using a topical product after patient finished. Topical to what? Topical. Topical. Topical uh, therapy. OK, yes. So you do it prophylactically? Even patient has no lesions at all? Yes. And for how long? Like forever? Well, you know, my idea is indefinitely. Their idea of indefinitely is probably a year if I'm lucky. Uh, So it probably just peters out and they stop using it because these are people who I rarely ever see again. You know, they're usually young. I'm treating them before they go off to college. They go off to college and onto their lives. So I really don't know but I'm suggesting to it, them that they use it indefinitely because eventually it's gonna work for anti-aging anyway, so why would you want to stop, right? So that's my answer, but I, I suspect that they're stopping relatively soon. Um, I actually have several MD dermatologists that referred to me for isotretinoin therapy. Uh, they won't prescribe it. Yes. So just saying that um, Can I say shame yes. on them? Yes, but I'm... <laughs> yes I agree. Uh, so my question is, I have um, a patient with severe depression that's been hospitalized for suicidal tendencies. Is there any special documentation you do, or do you get a psychiatrist involved in those situations? Yeah. For that, and let's, let's lump inflammatory bowel disease in along with that, um, I ask their, their, their GI or their psychiatrist to join me in the treatment of this patient. I actually worry less about the patients who are already on psychotropic medications or under the care of a psychiatrist because they're already plugged into the system. They're already talking to somebody. People are watching them. Parents have have been perhaps a little bit more vigilant about the mood and the moodiness uh, of a teenager. I mean, how am I supposed to know, right? All teenagers are like the same. They're annoying and moody. I don't know if this particular teenager is sullen because he's different or sullen because he's a teenager. So I I like to have the psychiatrist involved. In fact, I'm less worried about the psychiatric complications or potential complications in a patient who's plugged in than I am in someone who's not. I've read some data that um, the higher dosing per day, not the cumulative dosing, Uh um, is important in terms of preventing relapse rates, is it well documented that the cumulative dose is what we should shoot for, like the 120 milligrams per kg, or should you go for 1.5 times the kilogram amount um, I, for a month uh, or two? There is very get? clear data that 120 to 150 is where you need to shoot. There was a more recent paper that's, that looked as though a lower dose was okay, but all of the rest of the data says 120 to 150. And as I said, I'm now adjusting to 150, done. So you don't think higher daily dose? for? Oh, daily dose. I missed yeah. that. No, no, cumulative. cumulative. Daily dose matters not at all. Okay. That's been shown many times. Okay, I didn't even realize there was a microphone back there. I'm terribly sorry. You, sir, in the white shirt. That's all right. Um, I was curious to know, in the new data that was collected by Absorica, if in the Fed state they monitored the amount of fat that was taken in from the Fed state to see if that would equate for the uh, uh, equal absorption. They were given uh, dietary rules, and it was 50 grams of fat. Whether or not they followed it, I don't know. Okay, one more time at the back microphone, then we'll move to the front. Is there a recommendation of how long to wait in between treatments uh, courses. Right. Um, the recommendation is six months. I don't know where it came from. In fact, I'm not even sure it's in the, in the package insert. I'd have to look to see if it's actually in there. But that's been the recommendation, certainly standard of care. Yeah. Hi. So she answered my second question. OK. So first question is, how high should the triglycerides be toward mm. use of lipid-lowering drugs? That's a good question, and of course it's individual. My, my worry sign is 300. At 300, I make the phone call to the private doc and let the private doc decide when to add the lipid-lowering drug. So the 300 triggers my phone call. What triggers the use of the drug is sort of up to the um, PMD at that point. I turf very well. Did you have another question? Yeah, I did. So, And the hormonal studies, if a second time is required, mm-hmm. or which hormonal studies would you use okay. or, or look for? Um, if it, one of the reasons for relapse is, let's go over the reasons for relapse. Um, being a guy, don't know why, maybe compliance issues, but who knows. Um, being very young. Under the age of 16, for some reason, is more commonly associated with the need for secondary treatment. Then the third is women with hormonal imbalances, which have not been diagnosed, which have not been looked for. So in the women who fail, failure is not the right word, who recur. They don't, nobody fails it, right? You go on the medication, you get better. The question is, when you go off of it, does it come back? So it's not technically a failure. Um, do they have hormonal imbalances? And in them, what you want to check off birth control pills. So they have to stop birth control pills or spironolactone, have to be off androgens for at least six weeks. And you test it uh, while they have their menstrual cycle or very close to it on either side. You do not want to be testing during ovulation. And then you check testosterone free and total, DHEAS, FSH and LH, and prolactin. Did I say DHEAS? Okay. so testosterone-free in total, prolactin, DHEAS, and FSHLH. Looking for polycystic ovarian, basically, or excess androgens from whatever reason. Uh, Great talk, Dr. Baldwin. Thanks. If the dermatology thing doesn't work out for you, you've got a great career in (laughs) common. Thank you. I just read a study last week on high-dose isotretinoin, 200 to 220, uh, apparently to prevent relapsing and the side effects aren't as bad. Um, can you comment on whether you've actually done it that high? I never have. And I would be really surprised if the side effects weren't higher. Perhaps not the serious side effects, but certainly, I mean, their lips are just going to fall off of their faces, right? Yeah, yeah the, I mean, that, that, that was my thought process. Yeah. But I was just curious if you'd ever, what's I, the highest dose you've ever gone? I used to do 1 mig per kg. And then I got burned on 1 mg per kg with initial flares. So now I started a half a mg per kg or less. I might go up to 1, but I have not gone past 1. I sometimes use a duration which is longer in people with bad back or chest because that's a little bit more difficult to treat. But I don't see why the, the daily dose needs to be pushed that high. The only pay, people in whom I've gone at 1 milligram per kilogram for 4 months, which is 120, Right? Um, are my um, uh, n- almost to be married Hasidic girls who are going to who want to get pregnant on their wedding and will never be <laughs> unpregnant again um, or unnursing again? Right? So I've got one opportunity. They get married very fast. They come to me. I'm getting married in four months, and I got this face. What are we going to do? Um, so those are the only people in which I put in who I push it high. So, so you'd rather just retreat them? I'd rather, no, I'd rather go longer. real high dose. I'd rather go longer, yeah. not retreat. Yes, Mimi? Do you get x-rays on patients who are on uh, long-term? Oh, She has hit me with a hard one right at the end, okay. Do I get x-rays on the long-term, is what you asked. Uh, no. I'm, uh, are you all too old, to, uh, too young to have read The House of God? Anybody read The House of God by Samuel Shem? You gotta read this book, those of you who haven't. It was all the rage when I was in medical school. Anyway, the fat man, who's the resident in this this book, has his first rule is you can't find a fever if you don't take a temperature. And I kinda go by that rule. So if there's an issue and somebody's complaining of something that would necessitate looking at, at their bones, then I do but I don't go looking for trouble. I especially don't want a baseline to compare it to later on, right? Um, having said that, the new absorcus study that again looked at 925 patients saw no red flags in bone density issues, none. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. We're out. All right, well thank you very much again.